Okay, so after a year and a half of going verse by verse through the Gospel of John, we're staying with the same author, and now you can guys, you guys can open your Bibles because at the very end of your New Testament, there's three little epistles by the same John, and I'm really, really excited about this. Now, this week is an introductory message. So that means that this, all the verses are gonna be on the screens this week. Next week, you definitely wanna bring your Bibles. Why? Because next week, we're diving in. Guess how many verses we're getting through next week? Four. <laughs> Someone guessed it. Four verses. Okay, so we're really taking a deep dive into 1 John, and I'm so excited. For the first time in 19 years of feeding the flock of God, the Word of God, here at Calvary PSL, I, I um, now am... Um, no longer separating my devotions and what I read in my devotions from the book study that I'm teaching at church. And the reason why is because 1 John is so rich. And so I'm having my devotions in 1 John. Maybe the Lord will do, lead you to do that as well. But we are gonna dive deep into this divinely inspired letter of 1 John. And today, the title of the message, which by the way is the theme, is there is more. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'll talk to him out loud. You talk to him in your heart, and we will humble our hearts and ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit today. And so, Lord, we know that without you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, I pray that as we tune in for the coming weeks ahead to 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, that, Lord, you would speak to our hearts. God, help us to humble our hearts. Help us to realize that you have made us responsible to humble our hearts before you, our creator and our redeemer. And I ask God as we humble our hearts that you would speak to our hearts. Little hearts next door. God, as they learn about Jesus on their level, but big hearts here in this room as we learn about Jesus and the truth of the, of the gospel, Lord, in 1 John. Speak, we pray. Holy Spirit, have free reign. Do whatever you wanna do in each of our hearts and lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Okay, so as I just said in my prayer, we're actually kicking off three New Testament letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, as we approach this letter, today, again, is an introductory message, but you gotta understand that these three letters are known for their simplicity, but they're also known for their profundity. And what I mean by that is that they're really, you'll see this as you read ahead, they're really easy under, to understand and down to earth, and yet there'll be places as we go through spiritual truths that soar to really, really great high places that are gonna thrill the heart, here's the key, of any spirit-filled believer. And so regarding these letters, the great reformer Martin Luther said this, quote, I have never read books so simple and yet sublime. Now, I don't know about you, but I, for one, really appreciate simple. In my own personal reading, I'd much rather have a book that is short and concise as opposed to a book that is long and way over my head. But here's what I know. Ever since the Holy Spirit of God quickened my spirit um, through faith in Jesus Christ, Ever since I was born again, I find myself more and more and in greater measure desiring that which is lofty, that which is excellent, that which is beautiful, that which is spiritually sublime. 
And so I'm really excited in the coming weeks of diving really deep into these three letters with you. And again, I wanna emphasize this. I wanna emphasize that, man, we have got to, as we approach 1 John and any book in the Bible, we have got to humble our hearts. How many of you guys know that God, the Spirit, does not speak to proud hearts? Absolutely not. Anybody who's got their wall up, anybody who's got a prideful, arrogant heart, the Holy Spirit, like Elvis, leaves the building. He will not speak to that person's heart. Now, he will maybe put that person on their back, like he did Nebuchadnezzar, who was proud and arrogant in the Old Testament to get his attention. We thank God for that. But, but ladies and gentlemen, we are responsible before God to humble our hearts before him. And when we do that, man, the Holy Spirit can speak. But not only that, not only am I asking you as we approach 1 John to humble your heart, I'm also asking you to pray that the Holy Spirit would give you and I his illumination. And so as we do that, as we pray for a humble heart, we pray for the Spirit's illumination, then what we're gonna find out is by the time we finish the third letter of John, all of us will have grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so by way of introduction, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna spend a lot of time reintroducing to you the Apostle John. We're gonna dive deep and we're gonna get to know this guy like we have never known him before as an introduction to his letter. And so you need to know that John, like Jesus, grew up in Galilee. And his dad, Zebedee, owned a thriving, successful fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. So Zebedee and Salome, his wife, owned this fishing business Zebedee made his living by casting nets on the Sea of Galilee, we believe right up there around Bethsaida at the northeast tip of the big lake, okay? So if you see Bethsaida, please say amen. And so Peter was from there, uh, pretty, pretty sure Philip was from there, and that's where we believe Zebedee had his fishing business. And John, the author of the book we're gonna study, and his brother James, they worked for their dad. And so they're there, and they're in their fishing boat, and in Matthew chapter four, a glorious day occurred to these two brothers. I say it's a glorious day because that's the day Jesus came looking for James and John. And so Jesus comes walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He sees James and John in their boat, mending their nets, and he says two words to them. Anybody remember the two words? Follow me. By the way, Jesus is still saying those two words to all of us today. Follow me, right? Being a follower of Jesus Christ is not defined by going to church. Church is important. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, right? As is the manner of some, right? Church is important. And by the way, church is not a building. Church is us, okay? So never forget that as well. But, but listen, follow me is way more than going to church way more than checking a box, way more than just being religious. Follow me is total life commitment. And he said, follow me, right? And what did they do? How did they respond? Matthew 4 says they immediately left their dad and their boat, and they followed Jesus. By the way, sometimes you just need to go. Sometimes you just need to leave. Maybe 
God is speaking to someone right now. I have no idea. I didn't say that in any other service. But anyway, moving right along, um, they follow the Lord. And they had a front row seat to watch and to be a part of the greatest ministry in the history of the world. And so John follows Jesus all around Galilee, the north part of your screen, all around Judea and the southern part of your screen. All, uh, all around Samaria in the center there. And not just that, because how many of you guys know Jesus came for the Jews and the Gentiles? And so he also went over into the Gentile territory, uh, the Decapolis as well. And as John is following Jesus, again, what are we doing? I'm reintroducing you to the person who wrote the letter we're gonna study. And John is following Jesus. And what is he doing? He's hearing the greatest messages he's ever heard in his life. Not the messages that he heard, not, not anywhere near like the messages he heard in Saturday uh, Sabbath synagogue growing up. No, 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 no. These messages that he's hearing now all around Israel, they're the greatest messages ever he's ever heard before. Why? Because they're messages, it's the word of God out of the mouth of the living word. <laughs> and not just that. He's seeing miracles, signs and wonders from the Lord Jesus Christ as Jesus shows his compassion for people. And not just that, not only did he hear the greatest messages and not only did he see amazing miracles, John felt the love of Jesus in his heart. And so here's what you gotta understand. Jesus changed John's life. And honestly, this change sometimes was very, very slow. Let me give you some examples of that. In Luke chapter nine, when there was a certain Samaritan village that did not want to receive Jesus. I mean, imagine if Jesus came to Port St. Lucie and the leaders of Port St. Lucie said, you're not allowed to come into our city. And so there's a Samaritan village who found out that Jesus is coming and Jesus sends advanced messengers because he wants to stay there for a while. And they find out as Samaritans that he's going on his way to Jerusalem and he believes that the real temple is the temple in Jerusalem, not their temple on Mount Gerizim. They get upset. Jesus is not welcome here. Okay. You guys remember how James and John, the author of the book we're gonna study, how they responded to those Samaritans? They went to Jesus and said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on their heads? Man, talk about zeal. Talk about passion, right? But here's what you gotta understand. It was misplaced zeal, and it was misplaced passion, and it misrepresented the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm concerned about, that in a lot of very conservative evangelical churches, like our church, what's happening in a lot of these churches is that people are adopting more and more as they see the culture doing what the culture is doing. They're adopting more and more this angry, militant kind of Christianity that lacks grace and lacks love. And ladies and gentlemen, whenever we give in to that attitude, we are misrepresenting the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I hope that you'll hear that. Don't give in to that kind of attitude. So how did Jesus respond to John? He rebuked him. He said, you don't know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy people's lives. The Son of Man came to save people's lives. And so here's what you gotta understand. We have to make sure 
that we don't have this kind of angry, misplaced zeal. And so John was a hothead in his early days. And maybe that's why Jesus called him and his brother the sons of thunder. Here's another example. In Mark chapter 9, there's this guy, and he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. He doesn't belong. He's not one of the 12 apostles. How does John respond to this guy? He actually goes to this guy and stops him from casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, apparently it was working. So apparently there's people who are demon-possessed. I can't imagine how horrible that might be. Who are getting delivered, and yet John comes and wants to stop this guy. How did Jesus respond to that? He rebuked John. By, by the way, how many guys know that it's good every once in a while to get a good old-fashioned rebuke from the Lord? That's part of discipleship. <clears throat> That's part of growing in the Lord. And so he rebukes John, and he says to John, and by the way, the reason John um, stopped that guy is because John said he's not part of our group. And so Jesus rebuked him. He said, John, he who isn't against us is for us. And he corrects this whole sectarian spirit that John has. Can I just say something? That the older I get, I just see that, that some of my zeal in my earlier years was misplaced zeal. And some of my passion for the truth, because I have a lot of passion for the truth, that, that sometimes that has caused me to look down on other Christians. And I just want to say that I've repented of that. And I just want to say as I get older, by the Holy Spirit's grace, he's making me better. And I just want to say that the Holy Spirit of God, you know, he doesn't like an attitude where we in whatever denomination or we in whatever network or whatever church that we are in think that we're better than all of these other Christians who really don't understand truth like we understand truth. And so not only do we as conservative evangelical churches need to repent of our sometimes militant, angry form of Christianity that lacks grace and love, but some of us in the evangelical conservative church also need to repent of this whole sectarian spirit. The older I get, the more I see the necessity of solid evangelicals across the world joining together to reach the, the planet with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, five of you, for saying amen. So do you guys actually believe that we should be joining with other solid evangelicals to reach the world for Jesus Christ? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Another example, Matthew chapter 20. John's mom, Salome, she goes to Jesus and she makes a huge request from Jesus. She says, Lord, I wanna ask you to put one of my sons on your right hand and another one of my sons on your left hand, James and John, when you come into the kingdom. Wow, talk about ambition. By the way, who do you think put mama up to that? James and, what's his name? John, John, the author of the letter that we're gonna study. And the other disciples knew this. They knew that James and John put mama up to this, and so the Bible says that the other apostles were very indignant, right? A rift, division, where there should be unity. And so John is a hothead in his early years. 
He has a sectarian spirit in his early years. And he's also way too ambitious as well. In other words, John was a work in progress. How many of you guys believe that you also are works of progress? Raise your hand. Yeah, I'm gonna wait for everybody to raise your hand. Keep your hands up. I'm just gonna wait right here. I'm gonna be stubborn. It's 1135. I can go on for hours. Yeah, I'm gonna raise two hands because we are all works in progress, ladies and gentlemen. And we thank God for a God of grace and mercy and long-suffering and patience with us. We do not deserve that at all. But he continues to reach out. He continues to love. He continues to be patient with us. And so in spite of all his flaws, John knew Jesus loves me. In fact, John knew this so well that no less than five times does he say in his gospel, I'm the one who Jesus loved. I'm the beloved disciple. John was confident that Jesus loves me, this I know. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you as your pastor to have that same confidence. Why? Because the Bible tells us so. The Bible tells us Jesus loves you. I wonder, I wonder if you really believe that in your heart of hearts. You say, but man, I blew it. I have flaws, I've sinned. I keep messing up. Listen, so did John, and so did Peter, and so did Andrew, and so did James, and so did all of them. What makes you different than all of them? Jesus still loved them, and Jesus still loves you, and he still loves me. And so as we continue following the uh, life of John, here's what we find out. But by the end of Jesus's ministry, Jesus and John become very close friends. Now, what we gotta understand is that Jesus, yes, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. He's a human being. By the way, the Gospel of John is, emphasizes his deity. First John emphasizes his humanity. So he's 100% God, 100% man, and as a man, you need to know that Jesus had friends, he had acquaintances, and he had close friends. That's just part of being a human being. And so John and Jesus were really close. And by the end of his ministry, Jesus knew this guy loves me and I can trust this guy. And so you know what Jesus did? We covered it just a few weeks ago. In John chapter 19, Jesus entrusted his own mother to John's care. And from the cross, by the way, John's the only one who stood at the cross. The other 10 were gone. Judas hung himself. And at the cross, there's John and there's Mary. And Jesus looks at his mother and says, behold your son. And he looks at John and he says, behold your mother. And the Bible says from that day forward, John took Mary into his home. And so it's amazing how, this, how Jesus entrusts people who love him. And so as you continue to follow the narrative, the Lord dies on that cross and he's buried. And the third day, he rises and walks out of the tomb victorious. And then early, early that Sunday morning, after telling everybody in his gospel, John tells everybody in his gospel, I outran Peter to the grave, right? He tells us all that, and he gets there. And then later on that Sunday, he sees the risen Christ. You need to know that after, G after, after John saw Jesus, man, his faith soared to new heights, and so now, as you continue to follow the narrative, we're in the book of Acts. We're following John's life. And we're in Jerusalem. 
If you see Jerusalem, say amen. Well, just to the right of Jerusalem, there's the Mount of Olives. And so it's now the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, from the Mount of Olives, goes up to return to his Father. Absolutely amazing. John saw that. And by the way, the angel said to the disciples, this same Jesus who's taken up from you will so come in like manner. And the Bible says that when Jesus returns at the second coming, he's putting his feet down at the Mount of Olives. Where's Jesus coming back to? The Mount of Olives, and there's gonna be a great earthquake. And then there's gonna be the establishment of the kingdom. But after Jesus goes up, they're looking, they're looking, they're looking, and he's gone. John goes over to Jerusalem. And the next thing we find as we're reading the Bible is that John is up in an upper room in Jerusalem and he's with one accord with 119 other men and women of faith and they're praying. And the next thing you know, the day of Pentecost comes. And then John and the other, other 119, they receive the glorious indwelling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And the next thing you know, Peter's preaching. <laughs> The Holy Spirit's doing something. People are coming from all over the place, converging in Jerusalem. And Peter's preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit. And John sees 3,000 Jews from all over the world, the diaspora, scattered Jews who came for the Feast of Pentecost. He sees 3,000 of them turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And they get saved. And then what do you do after you get saved? What's the first step of obedience after you get saved? Baptism. And that's exactly what John saw. 3,000 of them got baptized in all those mikvahs around the, um, around the temple mount where the Jews would cleanse themselves before they would go for temple worship in Old Testament times. And so John sees them being baptized. And the church is born on the day of Pentecost. You keep following the narrative, and the next thing you know, we have this church of 3,120 believers. And what are they doing? I can tell you what they're not doing. They're not just going to church. And they're not just checking a box. And they're not just being religious. Acts 2.42, one of the verses this church is founded on. They were devoted. Can you guys please say the word devoted? Jesus accepts nothing less. They were devoted to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, that's communion, and prayers. We pattern our church after that church, the early church. They were devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. Who are they? Peter, guys like Peter, James, and shout out his name, John. And praise the Lord. They started writing it down, right? Yeah, thank God for that. Praise God for that. Maybe some of you are new to Christianity, new to the church, and you had no idea all this stuff even happened. Well, well man, we, we want to teach the Bible to you guys. We, wanna, we want you to understand what you're part of. You're part of 2,000 years of the fellowship of the saints, Right, who were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles like John. And thank God, right, as the first century continued on, they wrote down the teachings of the apostles and their associates. We call it the New Testament. And praise the Lord that you have a copy of the New Testament, I hope, with you today. That's, a, that's the Lord calling. He just wants to say, I approve of everything that's being said right here. All right, 
But, but man, thank God for that. We're part of such an amazing history. So John, he just won't stop calling. All right. John helps to lead the church of Jerusalem along with Peter and James and then another James, remember this, the little half-brother of Jesus who becomes the lead pastor of that megachurch. And so he's there and he's sharing, he's ministering, he's using the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God has given them. And by the way, everybody in this room has received at least one or more gifts of the Holy Spirit that you need to recognize and start uh, uh, exercising in your local church. And so we see in Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 8, what is he doing? He's ministering in Judea, he's ministering up in Samaria. Then you keep reading years later and you get to Acts chapter 15 and you're now at the Jerusalem Council. Praise God for the Jerusalem Council. Why? Because at the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, they clarified what is the definition of the gospel. You see, there had been some false teachers that were going into churches like our church and they were teaching people like you 2,000 years ago that to be saved, you have to have faith in Jesus plus works. Getting circumcised, keeping the law of Moses, and faith in Jesus plus meritorious works will get you into the door of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a false gospel from the pit of hell. The true gospel is not faith plus works equals salvation. The true gospel is true authentic faith that works. Listen, it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what happens is that the Lord comes in. And how many of you guys know that when the Lord comes in, he changes things? And so what's the, what's the evidence? The evidence is you, Ephesians 2.10, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to walk in them. So it's not faith plus meritorious works where you earn your way to heaven. It's faith that works, evidential works, to show that you really are saved, and it's faith alone in Jesus Christ. I love preaching the true gospel, and that's what was clarified at the Jerusalem Council, and that's when John, the author of the book we're gonna study, gives the right hand of fellowship to a guy that believed that with all his heart, a guy that a lot of people were afraid of, a Pharisee who got saved. His name is the Apostle Paul. And after the Jerusalem Council, guess what happened? John disappears for over four decades. He disappears from the... Um, pages of the New Testament. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit decided that he sovereignly was going to follow the powerful ministry of the Apostle Paul for the rest of the book of Acts. And so what happened to John? What happened to John in his later years? Did he remain in Jerusalem? Well, if he did, here's what you need to know. At some point, John fled the city of Jerusalem. Does anybody remember what happened in AD 66? It's called the Great Jewish Revolt. Does anybody remember the party of the zealots? Right? And so the Jewish zealots, they take up arms and they fight against the Roman soldiers in the streets of Jerusalem and they take back Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. And how many of you guys know that Caesar in Rome is not going to stand for that in any of his territories? And so Caesar sends down Titus and a Roman 
army and they crush Jerusalem. They destroy the city and they burn down the Jewish temple in AD 70. And so John would have escaped from Jerusalem before AD 70. And maybe we don't know exactly at that point where he went, but here's what we know. We know who went with him. Mary. Mary went wherever John went. Why? Because John took seriously his responsibility to take care of mom. (laughs) And he did until the day that she died. And so the question is this. Where in the world did John go in his latter years? Well, we don't find the answer in the Bible. We find the answer in church history. Very, very early church history a guy by the name of Irenaeus. If, if you've heard of Irenaeus, I just, I'm just curious. Let me see your hands if you've heard of Irenaeus before. Yeah, I, I encourage you guys to find a real simple, concise um, book on church history and read it. It's so, so important that you understand what you're part of. And so Irenaeus was a second century church father. By the way, how close was he to the biblical narrative of the New Testament? Well, John discipled a man named Polycarp and Polycarp discipled a man named Irenaeus. Super close. And Irenaeus tells us that in his latter years, John, the author of the book we're going to study, lived in Ephesus. And so Ephesus, if you go there today, it's on my bucket list, but if you go there today, you're going to find nothing but ancient ruins. The city of Ephesus has been abandoned since the 15th century A.D. But you've got to understand in the 1st century A.D., when John was alive, This was a bustling, huge city, and it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Now, we're talking not talking about China, right, or or, or, um, Japan or any of that. We're talking about Asia Minor, and I hope this will help you orientate the the map. What we're looking at right now in modern-day terms is Western Turkey, okay? And so Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, and that's where Irenaeus tells us that John, in his latter years, lived and pastored and loved people. And so he's getting ready with parchment and pen to sit down and write the Gospel of John. First John, second John, third John. But there's another book he wrote. You see, during John's life, lifetime, probably around A.D. 93 or so, he is exiled by the Roman Emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos. So follow in the Aegean Sea. Do you see the island of Patmos? Say amen. And what book does John write from the island of Patmos? Revelation. And by the way, if you're new to Calvary, verse by verse, all the way through, it's on our website. I taught Revelation a few years ago. And so John is writing in Ephesus, and you gotta understand that, man, he is absolutely a changed man. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. John returned from exile, exile Patmos, and he continued to minister among the churches of Asia Minor until his death around A.D. 98. And so John, as far as we could tell, he outlives all the other apostles. Why? Because Judas committed suicide, and all the other apostles, according to really strong church tradition, were martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to picture this guy. He's an old man. He's sitting in Ephesus. 
he takes out parchment and ink and he begins to write 1 John. But you gotta understand, here's the application part of the message. You gotta understand that the John in Ephesus is completely different than the John who followed Jesus around for three and a half years. In his early years, this guy was a hothead. This guy had a sectarian spirit. This guy was way too ambitious. This guy is called the son of thunder. Why? Because he could get so emotional like that. But now in his later years, after being called, the, uh, known as the guy who wants to call down fire on people's heads, I want you to see the drastic change here. Now in his later years as an old man, do you know what he's known as? We know him as the apostle of love. What a change. And so what happened? Jesus happened. How many of you guys believe that Jesus still changes lives today? A thousand percent. Jesus still like, and he makes us, listen to this, he makes us more loving. Check it out. Uh, in his first letter, um, John says this, we love because he first loved us. So he emphasizes love. Then in the second letter, he says the elder, that's him, to the elect lady, that's a local church, it's a metaphor, and her children, that's people like you 2,000 years ago, whom I, what's the word? Love and truth. And then in his third letter, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love and truth. And then to sum up his feelings, he says, love one another. And so you're gonna see in the coming weeks, love, 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 love. All right, so here's the question. What in the world happened? What happened? How in the world did the son of thunder, a hothead, become the apostle of love? Here's your answer. Application time, everybody. It's by abiding in Jesus Christ. The reason John changed is because he made a choice to abide in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? If you're listening, say amen here. I defined it already in John 15. To abide in Christ means to stay close to Jesus Christ by continually trusting and relying in him, period. To abide in Jesus Christ means to stay close to Jesus Christ by continually trusting and relying in him. And that is what John chose to do every single day of his life. Well, who'd he learn that from? He learned it from Jesus in the upper room discourse. The Lord said this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So not only was Jesus not just talking to people 2,000 years ago when he said, follow me, but he's talking to you today and me, but he's also saying to us this afternoon in this church building, hey, abide in me. Continue to trust me. Continue to rely on me every single day. Now, how many of you guys, we live in Florida, have ever seen an orange tree and then an orange tree branch lying on the ground that's not attached to the orange tree? How many of you guys have ever seen that branch bear big, plump, juicy oranges? Anybody at all? No, it can't happen. Why can't it happen? Because Jesus said, 
just like the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then Jesus said this, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me. This is really good for everybody's ego this morning. Apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. And so the reason that John changed from being a hothead, sectarian spirit, too ambitious, son of thunder, to being the apostle of love is because he made a choice to abide in Jesus Christ. Somebody says, well, I said the prayer, Pastor, 20 years ago. Yay! So glad you said the prayer. I really am. But here's the question. Are you abiding in Christ today? Are you trusting in him today? Are you leaning on him today? And so John, man, he has he, uh, made that choice to abide in Jesus Christ. Jesus changed him from the inside out. And not just that, John bore much fruit because he made a choice to abide in Jesus. If you lived 2,000 years ago, and let's say you needed counsel, and you went to old man John, and you sat for an hour, here's what I know. By the end of the hour, you would be greatly impacted spiritually. Why, because he was so smart? Because he was such an intellect? Because he had so many letters behind his name? No, 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 no. It's because John was full of the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And when you were around John, you sensed something. You sensed the Spirit of God. When you were around John, you were loved. When you were around John, he was patient with you. In other words, check this out. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're a branch. And so as John was hanging out with Jesus, the sap, so to speak, of Jesus' love and life flowed into John on a regular basis. And you know what happened? It changed him ontologically. That's called sanctification. It's a lifelong process. And not just that, but it produced great fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. When you were around John, you felt like you had been around Jesus. Why? Because you and I become like who we hang out with. The question I have for you is, are you abiding in Jesus? Are you continually trusting and relying on him? Are you hanging out with him? And are you absorbing the sap of his love and life into your life? That is the key to ongoing change. And that is the key to bearing much fruit. And how would your marriage look? if you were full of the Holy Spirit every day and producing the fruit of the Spirit? How would your house and your home look if you were full of the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of the Spirit every day? How would your workplace be different if you were full of the Spirit producing the fruit of the Spirit every single day? How would this church be different if all of us were full of the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of the Spirit on a regular basis? You talk about revival, that's when revival will come. You talk about a spiritual awakening in our community, 
that's when it will happen. It's when we make a choice that Christianity is not defined by just going to church and checking a box, but we follow Jesus. We commit our entire life to Jesus Christ, and then we make a choice every day to abide in him. That's the key, ladies and gentlemen. That's the key to change. That's the key to bearing much fruit. It's called abiding. And so in this introductory message, here's what we see. The Apostle John is the author, and the reason we know that is because of the similar vocabulary and style that the Gospel of John has compared to the first epistle of John. And then the date is around A.D. 90 to 94. Dr. Charles Ryrie puts it around that time because he believes that John actually wrote his first letter after he wrote the Gospel of John. Um, but before the emperor Domitian unleashed the fury of his persecution on Christians right around A.D. 95. And then the purpose is to promote the spiritual welfare of those that he loved. And he calls those that he loved in John, 1 John 2, 1, my little children. It's such a term of endearment, right? I love that. I can picture the old guy, John, looking at his church and calling all of you my little children. I hope one day, if God gives me the grace to keep uh, pastoring here into my later years, I hope one day, maybe when I'm like 80, that I come out maybe with my cane, and I stand before all of you guys, and I say, my little children, open your Bibles, please, to whatever. And so this is the love that John had for the people. He wanted the people to be spiritually healthy. He wanted the people to be spiritually whole. And so what does he do? He does that, we'll see this next week, by first of all, first thing he does is he promotes, he shows the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the only Jesus that can save. And then what does he do? He shows us how we can have fullness of life in Jesus. Dr. Tony Evans, by the way, let me just say this before I read the quote. Dr. Tony Evans is the first and the only African-American to produce his own study Bible and his own commentary, and I think that's an amazing achievement, and God gets the glory. But man, that's an awesome, awesome thing. That's a long time coming. And so the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. Why? To tell sinners how to become saints. And he wrote 1 John to tell saints how to enjoy sainthood. And so John's gospel was written primarily to, to tell people how they can receive eternal life through faith in Christ, and John's letter was primarily written to show us how we can have abundant life by abiding in Jesus Christ, and that leads us to our theme of the entire book, and that is that there is more. There's more. I want you to close your eyes. Two more minutes and I'm done. Close your eyes all around the building. And I'm gonna ask you two questions. And I just want you, between, between you and the Lord, to answer these questions in your heart. What if there's more to life than what you're currently experiencing? And what, question number two, what if you are created for immeasurably more than you could ever imagine. You see, the Lord wants you to experience more. 
Go ahead and open your eyes. You say, more of what? More joy in your life. More light. More victory and discernment and hope. Practical righteousness and truth and love and faith and confidence. Okay, so what are these? These are the subjects that John deals with in his first letter to the Christian community. And these are the subjects that we're gonna deal with in the coming weeks. We're gonna exegete the text, and then we're gonna bring out these um, uh, subjects, and then we're gonna apply them to our lives. And so I close with the words of Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know Jesus wants us to have more? Because the thief, who by the way wants you to have less, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundant. And so the question is this, do you have eternal life? And then the question is, do you have abundant life? There's more.